Ah, the sweet sounds of spring in New York City. Good morning, I'm George Borarki, and this is Cityscape. You've heard of the Broadway musical Sunday in the Park with George? Well, this morning we're bringing you a show with a similar title. We're calling today's Cityscape Saturday in the Parks with George. That's me. New York City is home to more than 1,700 parks, playgrounds, and recreational facilities, and this is the perfect time of year to explore them. On this morning's show, we'll delve into the history of Central and Riverside Parks, tag along with a group of bird watchers in Central Park, and discover the Prospect Park you may not know. They're missing looking at the only lake in Brooklyn, walking through the only forest in Brooklyn. You're tuned to Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. We begin this morning with a status report on New York City parks. Joining me on the phone now is Sheila Feinberg. Sheila is with New Yorkers for Parks. That's an independent watchdog for all of the city's parks, beaches, and playgrounds. Good morning, Sheila. Good morning, George. Your group has been fighting for the city's parks for some 100 years How have your battles changed through the years? When we first started with parks, you know, the issue was how much parks, how much parkland could we have. And I think over the years we've seen a shift in commitment from parks that vary on, you know, depending on who's in the administration, who the mayor is. You know, we're happy that Mayor Bloomberg has made such a commitment to parks uh, during his tenure so far. When you say a commitment to parks, is that a financial commitment? In this case, it is a financial commitment. We actually did see our budget increase over the last six years now, and we saw our budget baselined. Then when I say we, and I say the Parks Department, saw their budget baselined. You know, in previous administrations, it had actually been cut, and that could be because of the fiscal crisis of the 70s and early 80s. But in any event, we're happy to see these restorations and expansions. How much parkland do we have here in the city? Yeah, we have over 27,000 acres, I believe, of parkland in the city, and that's including, all, obviously, all five boroughs. Are some parks doing better than others? Some parks do fare a little bit better than others. We do a report card on parks annually, and we've been doing this since uh, 2003, I believe. And uh, we look at park features that a park user would like to have working for them when they go to the park. For example, a water fountain that works on a hot summer day, a comfort station or the bathroom that's open when you need to use it. Some of the parks in Brooklyn do very well and in the Bronx and Queens and Staten Island do very well. Other parks are, you know, sadly neglected because they don't have as strong of a friends of group that's, you know, an advocate for that park. Right. Those organizations clearly raise a lot of money for the big parks. Yeah. Well, obviously, you know, not every park is a central park, but we have other smaller Friends have groups that do well promoting their parks in the community, creating programs for the community in the park, so that's helpful. The New York City Police Department recently started to track crime in parks. That was a big victory for your group, right? It was. In, uh, in 2005, we filed legislation with um, Councilmember Vallone because previous to that time, you couldn't find out where crimes were being committed in parks. NYPD tracked crime as the closest intersection or the nearest intersection to the park itself, but never in the park. So this was a big victory for us to have that uh, legislated. And what do the statistics show? How safe are the city's parks? Parks, generally speaking, are safe. The crimes that were committed were considered 
petty crimes. New Yorkers for Parks is holding a town hall style meeting with community leaders and New York City Council members on May 14th. So this is your opportunity to bring your issues to these folks? It absolutely is. This is something that we do that we're really proud of. This is the opportunity to have our membership interact with their council members. And more information on your website, right? Absolutely. www.ny4p.org. Sheila Feinberg, thanks so much. Thank you, George. Central Park is one of the most visited city parks in the United States. While a lot of the park remains as it was when it first opened in the 1860s, it's undergone a lot of changes through the years. Sarah Cedar Miller, Central Park's official historian and photographer, talked with me about the landmark's history. Frederick Law Olmsted and Calvert Vox are the designers of Central Park. Wasn't there a plan called the Greensward Plan or something like that? Yeah, the plan that Olmsted and Vox submitted, and of course won, was the Greensward Plan. Uh, sward is a, an English term for a lawn dotted with trees, so in a way, Greensward is redundant. I think. But, I, you know, what do I know from Old English? For most of their park, the vision would be an endless lawn, not unlike Sheep Meadow or North Meadow, but of course in a rocky, swampy, and hilly topography, they had to work very hard to get any sward at all. But they did. And um, it's a masterpiece. And in fact, I often say and have written that Central Park is the most important work of American art of the 19th century. And uh, I've only been corrected by people who think it's just the most important work of American art, period. And the most important work for New Yorkers' sanity. The city is very busy. It can be kind of crazy out there. And when this park opened in 1860, this city was growing rapidly. It desperately needed the park, as it still does today. Absolutely. Before that, there were a few little tiny parks. City Hall Park was the biggest park in the plan because uh, when they had laid out the city, they actually thought that, of course, if you're going to have a park, you would need it to have the rivers. And Manhattan is an island. And so they assumed that if people needed nature, they would just go to the shore. But, of course, shipping industry said, oh, no, we need all of that. And so they looked inward in the island, and they found this rocky, swampy land. Of course, 1,600 people lived here and, and had to leave. But, uh, you know, now more than 1,600 people come here hourly for the rest and respite that is so needed in a city like this. Set the scene for us, if you will. Where are we right now? Right now we're at the pond. Uh, we are looking at the first emerging daffodils, and... Uh, flowers of spring. We are um, looking at a man-made water body. It was originally a swamp. All of the swamps in the park's natural topography became water bodies. And uh, we're looking at a bridge which people can walk over and see the magnificent skyline of New York City against the beautiful trees. That is one of many bridges in this park. Mm -hmm. There are, I think it's 31 ornamental bridges that Calvert Vox designed. The whole idea was to separate traffic from pedestrians, the bridal trail, and the carriage drives. The um, streets of New York in the 1850s were impossible. Uh, you couldn't cross the streets at all. In fact, um, many years ago, I went to Hanoi, 
and I had never been so horrified in my life. I thought, how am I going to cross the street? There's absolutely no rules, no traffic lights, no traffic cops. It's total chaos. And I thought, oh my God, that's just why Central Park was important. I finally really understood how terrifying it was probably to walk downtown and try to cross Fulton Street. The park was meant to be serene, and of course it wouldn't be serene if the pedestrians tried to cross the road while horse-drawn carriages and horseback riders were on the drives. So they thought of a system of separation of ways in order to um, give everyone you know, the space they need to enjoy the park in their own way. We entered the park through Scholar's Gate. Each entrance has a name. What's the history there? The whole idea of the park, of course, is to forget the city. And so the designers and the commissioners didn't want you to say, for example, oh, I'll meet you at 60th Street and 5th Avenue, because immediately, of course, that's a reference to the city and its despised grid. And the whole idea was to forget the grid, and so you would come in on these meandering paths, that, and totally the topography would di be different than the grid of the city. And so they had to think of a name for these entrances, and they wanted the entrances to sum up something. And so they said, oh, well, maybe it'll be States of the Union, because, of course, the Union was in trouble at the time. And they thought of great Americans or great people or, you know, whatever. And finally, they decided, very New York, very chauvinistic, to think of the professions that made New York City rich and populous uh, and honor those professions because those rich and industrious New Yorkers were able to afford this park. So it's a pat on the back. As well as a reminder, they say in their report of the nomenclature um, of the gates in 1862, no idlers or drones, of course, would be welcome in the park. The park was for tired workers. So this was America, and we are still a, a nation that um, adheres to that um, Protestant work ethic that founded this country. And so when you walk through Scholar's Gate or Merchant's Gate or Artist's Gate or Artisan's Gate or Woodman's Gate or Miner's Gate, you are reminded that after a hard day's work, you deserve a rest in this park, but only after a hard day's work. I understand that in the park's early days, there was a gatehouse and a gatekeeper at each of these gates. Is that right? They counted, they took tremendous statistics, as did many places. In the 19th century was when statistics were born, and they counted every vehicle, every pedestrian who walked through the gates. But there were also park keepers who were, um, there weren't signs. They didn't want signs mucking up the park. They uh, wanted nature only, but they wanted people to know how to go to the park and where to go. So they had people stationed, the way we now have signs, uh, telling people how to behave uh, subtly. There are refreshment stands as well as food vendors throughout the park. I understand there was a time in history 
when there was a mineral water pavilion here, and you can get mineral water right here in Central Park. One of the important reasons that people wanted the park in the 19th century to be constructed was to be temperate. There were um, immigrants coming from uh, Ireland in particular, and the very uptight and uh, buttoned-down uh, commissioners wanted, of course, no drinking anywhere near the park, let alone in the park, and they thought mineral water and clean and fresh water would be an antidote to all of those immigrants who were drinking alcohol and that they would come to the park for healthy reasons and also for temperate reasons and drink mineral water which would refresh them and lead them from their evil ways. Speaking of water today, we of course have water fountains throughout the park, though in its early days there were water fountains where you could actually get ice water? On the mall and uh, a few other places, but particularly on the mall, they would put blocks of ice under the uh, water fountains. They were big blocky things, not like thin ones we have today. And the water would be pumped up. You would, you know, step on a pedal and you would pump up the water through the ice and uh, you would drink ice water, which was, you know, an absolute phenomenon at a time when ice water on a you know, hot summer day simply didn't exist. The park was also home to a dairy at one point. It was home to a dairy that never had cows, but it did serve milk. There were no cows at the dairy, but there were sheep and there were goats throughout this park. The goats were eating the young trees and uh, the, the guards, the park keepers and the park guards were somewhat horrified that they uh, actually, I believe, had um, uh, guns to shoot the goats. But one of the clever things I think they did with the goats was to round them up and have goat carriage rides on the mall. And uh, the sheep were a gift from uh, the uh, some sheep people in England and they gave a flock of sheep to the park, as were many animals. That's how the zoo got started also. And the sheep were grazed on the meadow, and eventually, uh, by the 20th century, of course, it was known as Sheep Meadow. The park also once housed a casino. Yes, but that just means little house in Italian. It doesn't mean you were gambling there, although um, it was originally supposed to be called the Ladies' Refreshment Salon because in the 19th century, ladies, proper ladies, did not go out and eat alone. So there was a place where ladies and children could dine by themselves uh, without the uh, male gaze. Yet it really, I don't think, was particularly popular, and very soon it just became a restaurant. Uh, in the 1920s, it was actually redesigned, and Mayor Jimmy Walker had it as his hangout. And although there was no gambling there, it was raided during Prohibition, and uh, there was drinking and all kinds of other things that must have gone on in the casino and Robert Moses came in and tore it down in 1935. And another thing I learned which really shocked me was that only until the 1960s was it required that men wear shirts in Central Park and you could be arrested even in the 30s and 40s for not wearing a shirt. The park had a dark period People didn't feel safe walking through the park. 
there was graffiti all over the place. The years you're talking about are, are basically the late 60s through 79. But Central Park, what most people don't realize, ha went through a several series of declines and restore. There was a very serious one in the teens and 20s that Robert Moses corrected. Then when Robert Moses left, he didn't have a plan in place. Yet again, the park was always a victim of the vicissitudes of the economy and politics. And so um, it had its good years and people would throw money at it and it would have its bad years. But it's a living landscape and if you don't care for it every single day, it will decline seriously. There are so many sculptures in the park. Tell me about some of those sculptures. What I love about the sculptures in the park, particularly like Schiller or right over here we have Thomas More, an Irish poet, is that when the immigrants came to America, of course they were looked down upon by the establishment. And they um, weren't necessarily treated as people who had a wonderful culture of their own. And so the Germans or the Irish or the Scots, the Danes, the Italians, all gave sculptures of their heroes to say, look, we have a rich culture. It's as old and older than your culture. And we have poets and sculptors and artists and dramatists and writers that are as noble as as the Americans, and uh, so it was a way of bringing their culture of the old world to the new world. Balto is a pretty popular statue here in Central Park. Tell us about Balto. Balto actually receives mail, <laughs> I believe. He's the only sculpture to receive mail, and I usually have to answer it because most school children write to Balto and ask why is he in Central Park instead of Alaska, because Balto was one of the sled dogs that saved um, children and, and adults from the diphtheria epidemic in 1925. Ten months after the sled dogs saved, brought the anti-serum to the people of Nome, uh, a, a statue of Balto was erected in Central Park. There were many books uh, about this famous run uh, right from the beginning, and people, even 80-year-olds, come to the park having read this book on Balto as a young child and have finally made it to New York, and the thing they know about Central Park, if they know nothing else, is the statue of Balto. And so Where's Balto is kind of like our Where's Waldo in the park. And, uh, you know, I could be up at 110th Street, and people will come up to me and ask me, uh, if I could direct them to where Balto is. It's like, ooh, you have a long ways to go. <laughs> but he is probably the most popular statue, or the most popular feature without question in the park. Sarah Cedar Miller, thank you so much. Thank you, it's been a pleasure. Sarah Cedar Miller is Central Park's official historian and photographer. This is Cityscape on 90.7 FM and WFUV.org. Take a walk through Central Park in the spring and you're bound to see friendly squirrels, moms pushing baby strollers, and lots of people sitting back and enjoying the sunshine. Here's what some people had to say about Central Park. I'm Robert Smith, and uh, we live on 63rd Street. We love this park. It's everything to us because we're dog lovers, and uh, it's a great area for all activity. My particular favorite spot is over at, in and around the boathouse and the lake and uh, over in the center part of the park, but we like 
72nd Street. We like the zoo part of the park. It, uh, those are all equally beautiful for us. I'm Joe Terrell, and I'm from New York City. I think Central Park is really a New York City treasure, and I really enjoy going through it whenever I can. I only wish that I lived closer to the park so I could come more often. I always love walking through by the zoo because I love to see the seals. I think that's the best free attraction in New York. My name is Cherise Phillips, and I'm from Chicago, Illinois. I love Central Park. I think it's wonderful. A lot to do, a lot to see. Uh, I love to run through it. love taking photos of all the different nature scenes. It's wonderful. Lovely playgrounds. It's just, you can spend the whole week just here doing something different every day. My name is Roger Payne and I come from England. When we actually come out of our hotel that we're staying in, we're in the Wellington, you look straight up the road, you can just see Central Park from there and as soon as you get to the end, you know, you just notice it straight away. So yeah, I think it's one of the first things that most people tend to sort of head towards purely because it's a place to sort of get away from the hustle of the main city, really. Just as Central Park is a respite for New Yorkers and urban-weary visitors, it's also appealing from a bird's-eye view. A variety of migrating and nesting birds frequent Central Park, making it one of the best bird-watching spots in the nation. Okay, uh, down near the water, a uh, swamp sparrow. We got a swamp sparrow. I am Star Sapphire. I'm from northern Manhattan, the Inwood section. I have been leading tours in Central Park for a full 23 years. On April 1st, we started our 24th season. We have a song sparrow just here to the left, kind of uh, on the grass just to the left of the seam of these two big rocks is a song sparrow. As birds migrate along the Hudson, and most songbirds migrate at night, at first light they begin to look to where they want to rest and feed before they go on with their journey and they see this huge expanse of green, and birds just filter in here. That's called pishing. All birders do some form of that, pishing or squeaking. It arouses the curiosity of certain families of birds, and a lot of times they'll just pop up out in the open to see who's making the sound, or what's making the sound, really. I mean, there used to be uh, places all along the coast that birds could stop whenever they want, but we don't have that anymore. There's so much habitat destruction, we really need our parks. My name is Lynn Herzog, and I live right here in New York City on the Upper West Side. I've always liked birds, but it took me really years to find out that what an incredible place Central Park is because it's just a magnet for migrating species coming from South America, coming from the Caribbean. It's one of the last great migrations of wildlife, and they're funneled into New York City. The best part of coming into Central Park and seeing the birds is their beauty. The colors, the shapes, each bird is, even in, within the species, is different from one another. But in the springtime, because of the mating, they have very distinct, very vibrant, rich colors to them. I mean, they're living works of art. Just going in between, just put its head up, just in, into the rocks now a little bit. When you first saw the bird on the ground, what'd you say? Ooh, wow! Yeah, wow, because it's absolutely gorgeous on the ground. That's what migration is about for the people of New York. One tiny bird making this many people happy at the same time. Bird watchers in Central Park. You can also bird watch in Brooklyn's Prospect Park, 
but chances are few people know about that. The Prospect Park Alliance recently launched a new branding campaign to promote the park's many features. I chatted with the group's Tupper Thomas. Tupper, good morning. Good morning. Now, you have 585 acres that you deal with there in Brooklyn, huh? Yes, I do. That is a lot of land, and there is a lot going on there. But unfortunately, you recently found out that many people are unaware of all that there is to do in Prospect Park. Exactly. We actually have a lot of people who come to the park, but what we found out is most of them only go to one place. And so they're missing all the fun things you could do, like looking at the only lake in Brooklyn and the walking through the only forest in Brooklyn or going to the wonderful Audubon Center. Prospect Park runs through so many different neighborhoods, so if you live in a certain neighborhood, you may not go to the other side because you're staying close to home. Or you've driven there and you always drive to this one spot because we really serve a huge number of communities because we do have this only lake and the only forest and There are a lot of small parks, but there are really very few large parks in Brooklyn for 2.5 million people. So a lot of people will drive or take the subway to the park, and then they just go to that one spot. It's the spot where they always know they can get the parking place or where the subway comes out. Uh, So they might be drummers at the Drummer's Grove who've come in at Parkside and Ocean Avenue for years, and they've never thought about what the Long Meadow might look like and how fun it might be to have a big picnic there. You have a dog beach in your park. We do. (laughs) We're a very dog-friendly park uh, from many, many years. Back in the days when no one else was using the park, uh, the dog people certainly were, and we became more and more friendly, and that made the park safer. And those early mornings with those dogs, it is packed, and they love the dog beach. (laughs) So talk to me about this branding campaign. How are you going about getting the word out about Prospect Park and all of its offerings? The first thing we did was we did a signage program at the entrances to the park that just said, uh, this the Prospect Park you, you, know, you don't know, and then people are looking at it, and there's a great big picture of something that you could do that people might not know about. We have maps up and things like that at, at the entrances uh, to help people find their way to those locations. And then we've actually put out press releases, and... People like you have picked it up, and uh, it allows us to uh, remind people to go around and take a look and see what's going on. Tupper, thanks so much for your time. Bye-bye. Tupper Thomas heads the Prospect Park Alliance. For more information, check out prospectpark.org. Before we wrap things up today, let's pay a visit to another New York City park with a rich history. Edward Grimm is the author of a book about Riverside Park also referred to as the Splendid Sliver. There's a reason behind the title. Uh, Riverside Park is about an eighth of a mile wide and close to five miles long, so it indeed is a sliver of a park. How did this park come to be? Well, the park uh, came to be uh, through the uh, genius of Frederick Law Olmsted, who took a uh, very uh, unpromising landscape and converted it into a park. Uh, Riverside Park uh, was a very craggy, steep terrain with railroad tracks running along the river and uh, Olmsted who had already designed Central Park came up with a plan for it. Calvert Vox was also involved with this park, also involved with Central Park and Prospect Park. Vox moved the park ahead over the next 30 years or so and uh, probably an unsung hero in the whole story of the park I think. 
How so? You hear so much about Olmsted, Olmsted, and uh, it, it, he certainly is a great name. But Vox was uh, actually they were they were rivals in some ways. They uh, weren't all that congenial with one another all the time. But he was the the uh, the engine that pushed it forward through the difficult years that followed uh, its very beginning. Robert Moses also played a role in the creation of Riverside Park through the years. Well, he played a very big role and a somewhat controversial one, too. He became Parks Commissioner in 1934. He had a saying, it's a quote I love, he said, If the West Side does not stir you, you are a clod past redemption. The West Side did stir him, and he did many fine things with the park, which by then had fallen into uh, uh, a lot of disrepair, all of the uh, the stench from the trains coming down from Albany uh, was wafting up to the drive, and there, there were a lot of problems. So he took it all in hand with his uh, characteristic vigor, and uh, he created playgrounds, he created the 79th Street Marina. He did a lot, but at the same time, he only covered the tracks from 72nd to 125th Street, and the people north of 125th Street in Harlem, I think, felt uh, uh, shortchanged at the whole transformation of the park. There are a number of monuments and memorials in Riverside Park. Most people are familiar with Grant's tomb, but there are a number more, including one for Eleanor Roosevelt, which I understand is the first monument in a park dedicated to a woman? That's right. The monuments run from 72nd Street, uh, where Eleanor Roosevelt is, up to the Ralph Ellison Memorial, and uh, along the way, there, there's the Warsaw Ghetto Memorial and the Fireman's Memorial and, of course, Grant's Tomb, the Soldiers and Sailors, and a lovely little uh, memorial that is uh, within about a block of Grant's Tomb. It's called Memorial to uh, an Amiable Child. It's, it's a lovely spot, and it's uh, dedicated to a five-year-old who uh, died in a fall from the cliffs, and uh, uh, it's something that should be seen by people who get up there. The tremendous amount of history in the park Ed Grimm, thank you so much. My pleasure. I'm rolling down my burden, down by the riverside. Edward Grimm is the author of Riverside Park, The Splendid Sliver. E. Peter Schroeder is responsible for the photographs in the book. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. We hope you get the chance to romp in a park this weekend. I'm George Bodarki. My thanks to producer Rashida Winfield. Have a great weekend. Down by the